Thomas Fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. This is your host, Steve Fielder, coming at you through uh, this microphone and all these wires and a whole bunch of technology that I don't have a clue how to uh, barely operate or, or know how it works. But it does work if you're listening to me. Hey, I've had a good day today, a really good day. Been busy podcasting, um, recording, uh, I should say, for future episodes. Uh, My good friends at DU Hunting Supply who make this um, podcast possible. And uh, there's a mention for you, Buddy Woodbury. So does that pay the bills for this uh, this week, I hope so. Uh, but at any rate, all the crew at DU Supply is going uh, up to Wisconsin for the Wisconsin Bear Hunters Convention. Uh, that'll be coming up here right away. And uh, that's always a huge gathering of hounds people. And, and the DU Supply Gang will be up there. Uh, as I complete uh, this podcast today... I'll be throwing the duffel bag and uh, some fishing rods and and boots and lights and all of that paraphernalia that we like to carry around with us and head north. I'm going up to Birmingham, Alabama tomorrow, overnighting with my friend Nubbin Moore. We may step out and listen to a dog bark uh, a while. And then I'm heading on up to Virginia to the home of my brother, and uh, we have a very exciting activity planned for the Saturday following uh, this recording. Will be my mother's 100th birthday celebration. It's amazing. Uh, she comes from a long line of of long living people. Uh, if you go back in her ancestry, she's a Hatfield from those famous uh, feuding Hatfields of. Uh, uh, Eastern Kentucky. And, uh, but at any rate, we'll be with mom for a birthday celebration. And, uh, then brother Randy and I will be, uh, jumping in the truck and making about a two hour drive down to Greenville, Tennessee for the APA American plot association annual breed days there in Greenville, Tennessee. Looking forward to seeing a lot of friends there and, and a large gathering primarily of bear hunters. But it's going to be interesting this year for the first time, they're going to have some UKC licensed coonhound events along with their breed day. So it'll be fun to see how all that works out. And I'll be taking Cruz, who's been spending time uh, up in Alabama uh, with my friend Keith Durkee. I'll be picking him up and taking him up uh to Virginia, where he'll be spending some time coon hunting this spring. So anyway, that's what's going on with me. But I'm really excited today to be able to introduce our guest. Um, I first met him on Facebook uh, through his messages. And, uh, you know, when you do this podcasting thing, uh, really, I do it because I enjoy it. I enjoy the conversations that I have with the people that I meet, and that's the primary benefit, but I get a lot of feedback, and uh, I really enjoy that feedback. Sometimes it gets a little overwhelming in trying to keep up with it, but I began to get uh, some feedback on the podcast from 
our guest today, and it was always very positive, insightful, um, well thought out, uh, and I felt a kinship with this guy uh, just from the things that he wrote. And so I thought, you know, this is the kind of person that I'd like to continually have on this podcast. That's the kind of vibe that I want to present to the listeners is that we're just comfortable together. We're we're talking dogs. We're talking about things that we enjoy. And I'm just looking forward to this conversation today. And I'll introduce him now. His name is Billy DeWire, and he lives in Slidell, Louisiana. And Billy, I am very happy to have you on the podcast today. How are you? Hey, Steve, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, it's my privilege for sure, and uh, as is the custom here, and I guess with most podcasts, when guests come on, it's kind of get a little backstory, a little background of who you are, so we know, uh, you know, a little about you before we start talking about the things that we want to talk about today. So, just tell us a little bit about who Billy Dwyer is. Yes, sir. Um, my name is Billy Dwyer. I live in. Florida, Louisiana. Um, I have three daughters. Uh, started coon hunting when I was probably 16, I guess. Um, moved around, got married, moved around a little bit. Finally settled back in Florida. Um, raised my girls up, and they kind of got their own families now. I mean, I'm 54 years old. Started pretty young in my family, so uh, went to a job. 28 years I worked a job and retired and uh, couldn't hunt a whole lot. I played the single parent deal for a good many years. So that kind of kept me busy with three daughters, as you can understand. <laughs> um, so, but after I retired, I decided I wanted to really get back into it. I mean, I missed it. You know, uh, it was something that's never left me. I started in 85 and I guess every, you know, year it's, I've been wanting to try to go back, just couldn't do it. But now, if I have a chance, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a shot. Well, that's awesome, and uh, I can't imagine being a single parent for three daughters. Oh, <laughs> I Lord, had one can. son. Uh, <laughs> Ella and I are both second times around. Uh, we, although we uh, were sweethearts in high school, and then didn't see each other for nearly forty years. And during that time period, she raised four daughters. (laughs) And, of course, I had the one son, but I can't imagine. But, well, my sabbatical from coon hunting came uh, in my military service back in the Mm -hmm. 70s. Although I did, and I've I've talked about it, uh, I did coon hunt while I was going through uh, tech school in Texas. Uh, but I had that three-year tour in, in northern Japan where I didn't get to coon hunt at all. Right. So, you know, I, and I understand, you know, that's probably where I started doing a little bit of writing for the magazines, uh, mm-hmm. maybe out of boredom, maybe just thinking about, uh, you know, how much I missed the sport. And it is something that gets into our blood, I, I believe. Yeah, sure. My mother always said it. Well, I was, uh, you know, born into it because my dad was <laughs> an avid hunter, uh, houndsman, um, mm-hmm. all his life, really, right up until he died at age 88. 
But uh, yeah, wow. it's a it's a tough thing to to get away from and all. But uh, well, uh, in uh, kind of warm up conversations there that we had, you told me about that you've got a puppy now, and mm-hmm. that you wanted to try to uh, get something that would be as near to the dog that you had before you quit. Tell us about that dog that you okay. That you had. Yes, you know, before I tell that, you mind if I tell one little. Hey, it's your it's your party, right. brother. You, you tell <laughs> you know, whatever you want. You was writing for UKC in nineteen ninety seven. I sent you in an article about uh gone out of sight but not out of mind. And you printed that article in Bloodline. Mm. And that was in ninety seven. So I mean it was flowing through me all that time and I finally got it in sight. <laughs> so I mean, you know, I still got that article, I still got the magazine with the article in it. Mm. Well, you know, that's kind of how my writing, uh, I've done quite a bit now over the years, especially since I went to uh, to UKC in 1983. And uh, before that, uh, my writing had consisted of sending two or three articles into Full Crime Magazine, uh, which uh, used to, back in the day, print a lot of stories. And there were a lot of good writers in uh, Full Cry, especially O.L. Beckham there in Missouri that was a, an excellent writer and, and just different ones. But at any rate, that's kind of where I got my feet wet into writing. And yeah. then when I went to UKC, there was a, a monthly column uh, expected of me called Coon Talk that I was expected mm-hmm. to write. and. It would be about a page of copy in the magazine, about a thousand words. And I that's kind of where I started. And then from there, I got into writing rules, uh, the uh, Coonhound Advisor uh, on the Night Hunt Rules and all that. But yeah, it's uh, the magazines are a good launching uh, point for somebody that enjoys writing. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. So was a redbone uh, dog what you started at, or the the breed you had, or what what breed have you preferred? Well, let me say um, when I started, I wasn't born into a coon hunting family. Nobody in my family coon hunted. We, I, I was probably the black sheep, I guess, because I stayed in the woods. I fished and I squirrel hunted, did all this, but I never did get into the coon hunting. Well, a buddy of mine that. Um, I did all this with fish and everything with his grandma. She lived in the country and she had a litter of blue tick. So we had a couple old dogs around here, but no hunting dogs. And he asked me if I wanted to go up there. He's going to get a puppy. And I knew I heard of these dogs before, but didn't know a whole lot about them. So we went and um, I wound up buying one of the puppies. Well, I brought the puppy home, still not knowing what I'm going to do with this puppy. Well, so big. Coonhound Bloodlines, you know how they send the papers in, they give you that thing for the subscription to the Coonhound Bloodlines. Well, right. when I sent them papers off and got that back, that was it. I was hooked. When I started going through that book and looked page to page, it's like I could have been born into this sport because I fell in love. And I don't ever remember not loving it since that day. Is, is that something? I mean, yeah, I just yeah. completely got him, you know, involved with it. Um, in I the got, tree dog world, we'd say you were a natural. <laughs> exactly. I guess you would. I mean, it just had to be brought out in me, right? That's right. That's right. Just expose right. you to the opportunity to let 
the what the good Lord put in come out. <laughs> Absolutely, no doubt. Yeah, you know, I went through that book, and I and back then it's not as nearly as many coon hunters in this little general area where I'm at that it used to be. Well, I went through the back of that magazine, found where they had a coon hunting club up here in Pearl River. And uh, mm-hmm. I called Mike Harper, who was a secretary at the time. And he invited me and my cousin to come up there and see what it was about and go make a hunt. Oh, Lord, he could have just poured the alcohol down me. I was, you know, after I went to that, it was all over for sure. You know, <laughs> um, it was, uh, and Mike and that whole club was super, super great. I was a member of that club for, well, till uh, it ended 10 years probably. Um, everybody over there was so nice and took us hunting and, you know, I mean, everything just fell right into place. Couldn't ask for a better situation. And, uh, I just got stuck to this thing so bad that, you know. Yeah. Well, so, you know, Billy, that's the way the clubs are supposed to operate. Exactly. You know, yes, they're sir. supposed to be welcoming. They're supposed to be a hub for the coon right. hunters. They're supposed to be a place, not only to come and fellowship, a place to have some fun with the dogs, whether it's a train contest or a water race or a night hunt. And they're always, always supposed to be a place where coon hunters welcome other coon hunters in. And I never quite understood the clubs that aren't that way. Uh, And especially in this day when so many of the hunts are based on uh, the entry fees that go into the hunt, uh, produce the purses that the uh, that the dogs compete for and you know guys kind of joke about well i'm going over such such hunt and help build the purse tonight uh and, <laughs> and as if that's all that they're capable of doing but the truth is you know that it's supposed to be fellowship it's supposed to be uh you know welcoming fellow hunters don't look at a a new guy, a new face in the crowd as competition or somebody that's, uh, you know, going to perhaps uh, upstage you or your dog. Uh, that's right. You know, because without that guy and a few more, you don't have any place to go or any place to compete. So I guess I never really understood that mentality. But anyway, you know, it exists got, sometimes. Yes, sir. When I, when I was, you know, when I got out of it, it was still like that. Mm-hmm. So after years go by, um, I lost track of a lot of that. So when I get back into it and I start studying on it a whole lot more, it's like a new world for me. I mean, this is different, you know, because um, I was in that part you're talking about. We would go to this club and we had our meetings and we would have club hunts and we'd have the hunts and people would get there before lunch. And fellowship and have tree and contests and they drink coffee and talk and tell stories you know i mean and time went on then the night would come and people would pack there it wasn't just um two or three people i mean the whole place would be full of truck at the time you know this is what they wanted back then it was just a good time you know and then we would hunt that night you know and had a lot of people over there that was big hunters um i mean roger dale carnaby he was a he was a member of that club. He was a frequent hunter and always packed a real good walker jib. I mean, I remember that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie Simmons and his crew over in Mississippi, always yeah. over there. Craig yeah. Disha, all of them would come there. And um, it was a good time to see Eddie and Craig and Basil. They had the same club 
where their club was at in Mississippi would do the same thing. And me and my dad and some people from over here would go over there and spend the day, you know? Um, yeah. It was just different then than it is now. It's just now come in, sign your, uh, fill out your card on the truck and go hunting. Yeah. Nobody would even be waiting for you when you got back if you even had to go back. This is what I'm seeing, you know, which I'm going to do it because I really love it. And I want to go competition hunting. If that's the way it is, well, I'll get used to it because I really love it. I want to go do it, you know, but it is different than it used to be. A whole lot different. Well, it is, Billy. And, you know, and I talk about this a good bit and I engage my guests to talk about it. And, you know, it's really not to say it's better than you, the the way you guys are doing now. What you're doing now is wrong. No, 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 not at all. But no. it, you know, when you when you have something that's good, you want to share it. And I guess what I would love to do uh, for today's hunters is to be able to share that atmosphere with them, just for a little while, and let them get a good taste of it, and that's see right. if that. Uh, it's like the the good Lord says, you know, this is taste me and, and see that I'm good. In other words, inviting people to follow, uh, yes, and I I think that uh, that that's the thing. You know, it's not a a bit about well. You and I said this uh, just recently. It's not that I'm trying to get everybody uh, or to change everything back like it was. No, but sir, I, I, I do. You and I both, and and that makes it particularly good that you're on with us today because. You've seen both sides of it, and right. uh, and you you know uh, you can certainly relate to what it was like back in those days. And I guess a lot of the reason that we have the kind of atmosphere that we do, it's just like when I pull up to McDonald's and go through the drive-through. I want that food now. I want it hot. I want it exactly what I want. And I want to go down the road, you know. And that's just kind of what we've evolved to as a society, you know. Yes, I do. And it's, um, you know, the thing that gets me a little bit is, see, I was 16 years old when I got over there. And look, I was in that club and did a few buddy hunts. And guess what? They took the scorecard and told me, you know, go judge. Huh. I'm like a deer in headlights. I'm scared to death. Okay. I got these big hunters out there been there forever. And I got to go judge these guys. Well, they helped me. Mm. And, um, I got more comfortable as I did it, you know? So, uh, and I wound up doing it a long time and I felt real comfortable about it. Learned the rules and did the whole thing. You know, nowadays though, those kids don't want to, I mean, this is just my opinion. Like what your other guest, uh, Jason Doherty said, you know, is this his opinion? Don't crucify me. I'm just giving my opinion. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I might be wrong, might be right, but need you know the youth hunts would be different because they like they'll have an all day thing there. They don't do that anymore for the sixteen, fifteen, sixteen year old kids. They don't want to come there and just act dark, yeah, hang a scorecard and take off. They want to be able to enjoy some mm-hmm. sort of day event on the weekend, and I think that would probably bring more youth into it. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, does that I make do. any sense? I do. Um, I think this conversation, the way it's going right now, would be a good, uh, as we used to say back in the days when I was a kid, a primer. In other words, your primary studies that you're taking in school that for clubs, 
is that, you know, what you said about they let you judge. And uh, that's the only way judges can get trained. You know, is uh, it takes two elements. It takes the the apprentice, the person, the young person like you were uh, that wants to learn, put him in a position where he has to make decisions, but then put him with a cast of dogs where the guys there are going to help him. Because really, there are very few decisions, hard, cold decisions that judges have to make out there on a night hunt. Mostly they're scorekeepers. They're just keeping track of everything, keeping the cast together, keeping things organized, and, and writing down the scores as they're given to them by the handlers. You know, so they don't really have a lot of situations where they've got to kind of really scratch their heads and try to figure it out. Those things do come along for sure. But at any rate, the elements there are, you know, clubs, listen to me, take these young hunters out, give them the scorecard, and then have a commitment by everybody that's on that cast that we're going to help this young judge or this new judge. Uh, to learn the rules as we go. And uh, because clubs need these judges and guides, uh, they need somebody. And, of course, most of them are hunting judges anymore. You know, I I grew up, and you probably did when you back in the day where they used non-hunting judges. Uh, You don't see that too much except in the the pro situations, we we call it. But anyway... Anyway, I'll get off that stump, but you bring up a great point there uh, for clubs to uh, right. to train these these new members or young fellows. Um, and if you're a young person out there, don't be afraid to take that card and tell the club, look, That's I right. don't really know the rules as well as I should, but uh, if these guys will help me, I'll carry the card and uh, I'll try to do my best. and. Uh, that's how people get trained, you know, and the sport goes forward. This future of this sport depends on it, I think. I mean, you have to have those judges and a good, honest judges. And if you teach them, to me, to be that way when they're younger, they'll continue and carry that on. That's just my opinion. And that's going to be your future, you know. I've heard numerous um, uh, guests speak about how important the judges are. And what good judge this was, a good judge that was, no matter how the hunt went, you know. So um, I really think it's important, you know. Well, it Uh, is. And a dear, dear friend and most coon hunters across the country knew him, and especially those in PKC knew Roy Tramble. Roy Tramble became the president of PKC uh, when Larry Meeks was the owner. Roy. Uh, really paid his dues as being a top-flight judge. Everybody that hunted under Roy Tramble talked about the fact that he knew, you know, he knew those four dogs in that cast better than their owners did (laughs) after (laughs) hearing them bark the first time. You know, I mean, Roy just had that knack. He was a coon hunter to the bone, and I, I'm so happy. I never really competed against Roy or was with him in a competition uh, situation, but I did pleasure hunt with him, 
and he, he honored me by he and Larry by coming up to uh, Michigan when I lived there and was working at PKC a couple of times and pleasure hunted with me up there and all. But the point I'm making is he went from being a judge to being a really good judge, which in turn yeah. worked into a position with PKC that ultimately led to him being named president of the organization. So, so, you know, that, that's something young folks out there, new listeners or new, new folks to the sport, uh, you know, judging really can be as much fun as handling a dog. Um, I, yeah. yeah, I enjoyed judging. Uh, after I went to PKC, I, they called on me several times to judge cast when, you know, we were having those, a hundred cast nights at the tennis center at the world uh -huh. hunt. We need a judge. Well, I put on a pair of boots and get out there, you know? And so, right. Well, wasn't some of the bigger hunts. They would just give the scorecard to the cast and say, somebody judge it. <laughs> no, no, that's not the way we did it. Uh, you know, the, the rules got massaged a little bit down through the years as well, UKC, for instance, you know, I chaired the rules committee at UKC for the 16 or so years that I oh. was in a position to do that. And, um, you know, it, it we put into the rules that the club would designate the judge, you know, because right. sometimes you do get that, you know, where you got That's right. four guys out there, nobody really knows what to do. And, and mm -hmm. and then sometimes the guy that grabs the card the first is the one really maybe the one you don't want judging. <laughs> True. Yeah. But uh, and then there's another angle to that too, and it's humorous, I guess. But it, it's way when you've been in management of coon hunts for as many years as I did, about thirty three altogether. Uh, you know, you, you say, well, this guy's kind of been a problem everywhere he goes. Make him the judge. He'll be so mm. busy trying to keep up with everything and keeping the cast in line. He won't be, uh, he won't have time to pull in shenanigans, you know. So, <laughs> so yeah. that's just kind of little stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Another thing, and I don't want to talk too much here. I want you to talk, but. What we were finding in PKC, and I don't know if this has been corrected or not, but there was a situation whereby, you know, the same guys were judging all the time. The way PKC does it, basically, when the guys come through, you know, and all the entry slips are taken, the management looks over here and, and goes through them and says, okay, I want Billy Dwyer to be a judge. I want Eddie Simmons to be a judge. I want roger dale to be a judge okay. and because they're knowledgeable they know the rules right. they're trustworthy they're people that they know that they can trust um right. they're usually guys that are hunting a really good hound and what happens right. in that system is that the guys hunting all the real good dogs end up not drawing each other and they hmm. usually come back in as a cast winner because they are packing a coon dog. That's right. And at yeah. the same time, you're not training anybody to take their place. You know, Correct. so we talked about that a lot, uh, you know, with Roy and uh, back in the day and all, and about how we need to put these cards in the hands 
of some people that are not as knowledgeable or not, uh, you know, yeah. haven't, haven't, uh, don't have the experience. And uh, so you made that point again. You're doing good, Billy. Uh, lead on. <laughs> lead well, on. you want me to get back to my first blue tick? I mean, that's oh, do we have boring. to? Do we have to talk about a blue tick? Well, oh, hey, Lord, well, that's, that's a good one. Though. The blue ticks catch a lot of flack from other guys, but I think it's mostly jealousy. It I think be. envy. Oh, no. You know. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Tell us about your blue dog. Well, I tried. I got this dog. I raised it up. And first of all, I hate to even admit this dog was a nut. All right. My first blue tick, first coonhound ever, um, was a just a cuckoo bird. Okay. I wound up getting rid of the poor thing. He was a little about 15 months old. He, um, I can't even go into everything he's done, but you think that would have soured me a little on blue ticks, but, um, I didn't. I went right back into the deep. So I found another four-month-old blue tick. I think I posted him on Facebook, named Rowdy, that he was a Southern Blue Pride grandson from an old gentleman down here we used to hunt with. He'd run this hide up and down this yard. And he had 10 or 12 dogs over there. They'd run this hide up and down all around, bark, bark, cut up. Well, he'd holler at me, all right, that's enough. He'd throw that old hide over a nail in the fenced-in area. Sit down, he'd say. So we'd sit there, and dogs are going about their business. Well, this little, pretty little blue tick, four-month-old pup, sat there on the other side of that fence and just treed that hide, barked, ooh, 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 would stare at that thing, stare at that thing. And I told that sucker, I want that dog. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I didn't know a whole lot then, <clears throat> but I said, that dog's got something special. So. We worked it out. Well, he wound up, he didn't want to sell me the dog first, but he wound up selling me the little dog. And um, I raised it up to about, I don't remember, 10, 11 months old, pretty thing. Well, I wasn't the only one that saw the potential in it. And a real good friend of mine, I don't even want to call him a dog jockey, but he did do some of that. He had a little walker jip over there, um, maybe two that was running and treating and doing a good job. Well, he wanted to trade me for the blue tick. And I didn't know. I said, well, she's nice. I treat, she treats him too. So I agreed. I shouldn't have did it. Now I wouldn't have, but then I did. Um, so he, I traded with him. And um, the dog I got was really nice. Treats him too with her. She wound up. I know why he wanted to get rid of her. She wound up being, doesn't allow to track. She would backtrack pretty bad, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, she'd treat some coons. But anyway. I figured this out as time went on. In the meanwhile, the man that I traded with sold the blue tick to another member of our club who was a distinct walker dog man. That's all he hunted. Well, he hunted on with this dog on a cast, old Rowdy, and he wanted him. He wound up finishing night champion. I don't know exactly what happened after that, um, but he wound up being a better dog. So he got the better end of the deal. I should have kept the dog, but I didn't. That's the way it goes. You're young, you know, whatever. But, um, well, you mentioned, anyway, I wind up. Let me jump uh, in. Let me jump in just a second, Billy. You mentioned sure. that the dog was out of a Southern Blue Pride. It was a grandson. Okay. Yeah. The Pride dog was owned by Major John Falcon in Georgia, Army okay. Major. And, um, uh, he, um, 
was a quite popular uh, blue tick stud dog at that time. I and remember I, that. Yeah, yeah, and I know when we started the uh, UKC started this uh, the Winter Classic hunt in Albany, Georgia. John Falcon was one of the guys that was very instrumental in helping us find the location there in Albany, Georgia for that hunt. And wow. then uh-huh. later on, um, he invited Fred Miller, who's president of UKC and I, over to uh, Port Clinton, Ohio, where they have the DCM uh, uh, matches. That's called the Department of Civilian Marksmanship. And it the NRA is very closely associated with that. And a lot of people maybe don't know that, but it's it's all about uh, the militia. And there are provisions in our Constitution that that we provide a militia, you know, of the citizens that uh, can protect the country. And so they have those matches at, at uh, Camp Perry every year. And you can walk off the street and they'll give you an M1 rifle and a bunch of ammunition and you can compete with all those soldiers and everybody, and it's a huge thing, and I really enjoyed doing it. I didn't actually shoot in the competition. I couldn't imagine. I looked downrange there one time at a target a 1,000 yards away. Mm-hmm. A 1,000 yards is a long way to shoot. Yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, But anyway, John Falcon, you just strike a chord there with me. What a great guy. I hope that he's still living. I don't know. I haven't heard anything from him in several years. Yeah. But he owned the Southern Blue Pride dog, and he was a beautiful. Well, I'm glad blue to know dog. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I didn't know that, but yes, sir, I'm glad. Well, I don't know what his offspring produced, but I know what his grand offspring produced, mm-hmm. and that was one nice little dog I had, and let slip through my fingers, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, anyway, time goes on. I'm still with the blue dogs. I wound up selling the walk dog I traded from to a guy in Ohio. He absolutely loved her, loved her. Tree coons in that cornfield. He called me and just loved her. So it worked out, but now I'm without a dog. <laughs> so I'm going to try me another blue tick. Um, back to I the well. To, <laughs> back to the well one more time. So I wound up going with a good friend of mine. We went and hunted his dog. He had blue ticks and. Um, the Hope Arkansas hunt that the BBCHA yeah, fall roundup, yeah. fall tick roundup, round mm-hmm. right? And I wind up getting the Utchman bred blue tick. Mm-hmm. All right, so puppy up there. Well, I bring it home and I'm raising it, doing this. Well, I'm getting my family started now. Pretty busy, having some issues. Well, my dad coon hunting with me now, and he's got a walker dog, but he wants. You know, he, he knows I'm fixing to either sell this dog, get rid of it. The dog was bred right, you know, so right. he worked it out with me. I wound up letting him have the dog pretty young, and um, he never owned a blue tip, but he called me one day and told me, he said, well, you know what I named that dog? I said, no, I don't. He said, "Um, no mo." And I said, what is that? <laughs> he said, after this, there'll be no Mo Blue Ticks. He had Mo as his name. I'm like, oh. hey, that's fine. That suits me. Well, he didn't wind up being too much. I mean, he did try. He hunted that thing, try, try, but he just, uh, he didn't. Well, that was ended my streak with the Blue Ticks. So I never had no Mo. So <laughs> I see. Well, they don't all 
turnout, that's for sure. No, they don't. And I'm not guilty. I'm, look, I'm nearly not knocking on them because if I could ever find a good one, I would love it. I'm not a prejudiced person with walking dogs. I have them now and have had them. I've had red bones and blue ticks um, and walkers. And, uh, I, you know, I'd take anything that would really run a tree coon and get me in a hunt where I could hunt it and have a chance at competition. I know it doesn't really make a difference to me. I'm just preferable to walking dogs now, you know well that's what you see you know in in the sport uh you can take for instance the big country dog that's so popular now mm-hmm. uh, in the blue tick breed and uh, a lot of walker breeders are going to him and uh, so forth and and ashley oxendine over there and john strickland those guys mm-hmm. uh, you know uh well the first time i met john strickland he was hunting a, a, a blue tick uh and that was when i went to pkc but anyway uh but uh i think the guys that really appreciate a coon dog don't really care what color it is mm, uh, yes. some people that have dedicated their life to breeding dogs uh, you know, have stayed within a, a single breed as breeders themselves. But uh, uh, as far as, uh, you know, wanting to uh, just say, well, if it's not a walker, I'm not interested. If that dog can compete and win, then he creates a lot of interest as the, Absolutely. As the blue, blue or big country dog has proven for sure. Yes, sir. Well, okay. So where did we go then? We got back into Walker Dogs or what? Actually, I went and um, I used to hunt with Philip Gray and Roy Schubert. I don't know if you knew Mm -hmm. Philip. I did know Philip. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I hunted with them a bit down here, mostly with Roy Schubert. Him and uh, Philip were really good friends. Well, Roy had a little red bone puppies. That was really nice. So, and I liked, well, Back up a little bit. Roy was hunting a little red bone jip named Lady, who was really nice. She running tree, but wouldn't lead worth a darn. He she would pull him all over the place. She wasn't a very big dog, but and I watched her hunt and I really liked her. So me and Roy worked out a deal and I got her. Well, she was doing really good. I probably would have kept her till she died. Well, she wound up getting struck by a car on the highway. Um, she didn't die, but she got her back leg messed up pretty bad. Had to get her put cut off and different things well she had some issues and uh she was i haven't i guess it's been a year i didn't hunt her well i made the move to mississippi um and i met a good friend of mine that i hunted with for years and it's still really good friends now he was coon hunting but a strip pros hunting wouldn't have anything to a competition hunting but i took her with his gray black and tan walker who was a coon dog she run they run a tree three coons Looked at all three that night. She hadn't been out in a year after getting hit by a car. I said, oh, man. You know, she was a really nice dog, but she started having more issues and, you know, wound up having to put her down. But um, then I went to another Roy, sold me another little Jip, who was another real, these were Timber Chopper, red bone dogs, mm-hmm. really nice. I really, really, really liked her a lot. And I've never seen it before, but she turned like mean as a snake and nothing jumped on her or anything she would just run everything off the tree and i told roy about it and he kind of didn't believe me so he he bought her back and uh he called me and told me the same thing she wound up she was just so mean i don't know whatever happened to her but mm. um i don't know yeah. what he did with her but that's one of those things and 
that was the last red bone I had, but I would surely love to have another one. I would hunt one right now if I could get one that I could compete with. I well, like them a well, lot. Well, for know? sure, and I think that's a good point to uh, or a place to insert something here. Yeah. Um, if we could figure out what's going on in a dog's head, you know, <sighs> we'd be wealthy. There's no doubt yes, about sir. it. I'd write books about it. I'd do videos. <laughs> I'd do podcasts. I'd be on uh, late night TV probably. But, right. Uh, and it's not breed specific. Uh, it's not that this breed is mean and that breed isn't and all. We do know that th- sometimes those characteristics, behaviors can be passed down. Uh, you know, if a dog has a tendency to be ill with other dogs, he can pass that along to his offspring at times. But sometimes it's just like what you said there with this female, you know, what caused it, you don't know. You know, no. it just surfaces. It comes to surface. could be a hormonal thing. It could be, we hear all this talk nowadays about thyroid dogs and the effects of tick-borne diseases and all these things that that can affect the dogs. The most frustrating thing to a hounds person, I think, is to have a nice dog and then something go wrong, and you can't figure out why. Uh, Mr. Steve, try- I was sick. I was sick, sick, sick. You yep. don't even understand. I know. <laughs> yeah, you terrible. try to play the blame game. Well, it was this, it was that, it was something else. And sometimes it can come back to something that we did uh, and didn't really think about it. You know, mm-hmm. I made a puppy mean one time, a, li- a young puppy. We had a litter of pl- uh, plot pups um, there, in, in, and we had a puppy pen that was elevated off the ground. So uh, it was designed to had a whelping box in one end. So when you went in to check on the female or check the puppies after they were born. You didn't have to stoop over, bend over. It was all at, at uh, you know, you could just stand there at waist level, basically, and all. And I'd go up to this pen, and this puppy, uh, he'd come out there. He was a real bold puppy, and I'd just kind of pinch him under the under the chin there around the base of his throat and just mm-hmm. kind of shake him a little bit. And boy, he would growl, and he would. <laughs> Mm-hmm. He'd throw a fit, you know, and my dad said, and I was a little, um, you know, young at the time. He said, you're going to make that puppy mean. Don't do that, you know. But I, you know, as boys would do, I'd slip around and do that every once in a while because I thought it was funny. Right. Well, later on when we sold that pup, we come to find out he couldn't get along with anything. He wasn't mm-hmm. man. He wasn't mean toward people, but he was definitely not a good right. citizen, you know. So some of these wow. things can be caused, you know, by our, our ignorance, which is yes. basically all that was. I I didn't have any malice in my. I wasn't trying to make him mean. I just thought it was funny, you know. But anyway, that's wow. a rabbit path, you know, that we go down. But yeah, <laughs> but I wanted to make the point there, you know, as you mentioned that this happened to be a red bone. Well, if you're a new listener out there or you're a new coon hunter, uh, just because Billy had a, a red bone uh, that was ill at the tree, don't you know stereotype all the red bones, or just because well, he had a blue tick or a walker that backtracked, don't stereotype because these dogs are all individual, don't you think? That's right. Well, I've hunted with so many red bones, it was shocking to me because honestly, I haven't seen many do that. 
That mm-hmm. I would never would have thought that to begin with, you know, especially with the breed I was hunting with. I hunted with those guys a lot, and that was an issue they never had, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was, I learned from a long time ago that I really didn't want anything <laughs> that would fight at the tree or be aggressive or run something off. That you, back in the day you didn't want that because most all time dogs feed together, you know. Right. So mm-hmm. you couldn't have that. So, um. That's why I wanted a jip to begin with, and a red bone too. Oh man, I wouldn't have that issue, and that's what happened to me. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's my luck. <laughs> well, the plot breed that I grew up with carried a stigma of being mean, mm-hmm. you know, and it it was unfounded. Um, it really was because I right. hunted with so many plot dogs that weren't uh, aggressive at all. Now they were plenty aggressive on game, you right. know. But with other dogs and all that, that was that was all undeserved. I think it came about because those original dogs uh, came out of the mountains of North Carolina, out of bear packs and and wild mm. boar hunting packs, and because they were rough on game, they were thought to be rough. And I'm not going to say there weren't individuals that weren't mean with other dogs. I'm mm-hmm. sure they were, and and. Uh, but we always tried to get right on that immediately when the pup was young around the feed bowl or feed pan, right. you know, and, and a lot of those things can be corrected early on. But anyway, that stigma of being uh, mean, um, there are individuals. And and one thing I could say to new hunters or young hunters out there, if you get a dog, no matter how many coons that dog trees, and how much you like that dog. If he's a dog that just won't get along with other dogs, get rid of the dog. Don't mm-hmm. try to hunt a dog that cannot hunt with other dogs. Now, we know nowadays with all these independent dogs, there's probably some that are that way, but they don't right. get in trouble because they don't get around anything else, you know. Yeah, but but you're going to cause more hard feelings with your hunting buddies, nobody's going to want to hunt with you. Um, I've known hunters in the past who thought that was funny, that if their dog put other dogs off the tree, then they got the tree. Those dogs got minus. Uh, right. And we talked about dogs that were light broke. In other words, they knew when a light was coming, they better straighten up and become little <laughs> angels, you know. Yes, sir. Dog men know this thing. Uh, dog people, I should say, of long standing know these things. But these are little tidbits that we throw out there for you if if you happen to be new to the, to the game. And, you know, there yep. are provisions in all the registries to scratch dogs that are aggressive from the cast. Right. So, you know, you're just kidding yourself if you're hunting on the old dog. And uh, you didn't pay any extra for that tip. And if you like those <laughs> tips, you can follow me on Facebook. Uh, okay, Billy, I want to talk to you about a little bit about let's let's put on our thinking caps here a little bit. All right. And and let's let this be the philosophical uh, portion of the. Uh, of I didn't the take philosophy though. Go ahead. <laughs> but you know what? Before we get into that, I want to be sure and just check up on my old buddy 
Fred Moran, the, Moran, uh, the Red Bone Man, over in the hills of Pennsylvania. Fred is in his 80s. I think he's about 85 now. Hunts four or five nights a week. He He's probably been either been out hunting or is uh, ready to go hunting. Let's check in with Fred Moran, and then we'll come back and talk some philosophy. Well, it's time for us to check in with our old buddy Fred Moran over in the hills of Pennsylvania. Fred, how are you doing today? Getting by, getting by. Another day. Another day, huh? As we used to say, another dollar. Well, next Saturday, night hunt start here in our area of Pennsylvania. Uh, So be somewhere to go every weekend. Uh, You go pick up a a PKC hunt if you, you know, uh, go during the weekdays and that, but the UKC ones will start next Saturday and a few AKC in this area. We have a lot of clubs, a lot of new clubs. There, there were a few dropped out. We used to have a club. I, I don't know if you ever heard of this guy. His name was, um, uh, uh, Nelson. Uh, uh he lived up in uh, Armstrong County. I'm trying to think of Nelson is his first name. I'm trying to think of he used to write a column in the magazines also. And he he wasn't a hard coon hunter, but he'd go just for his own entertainment. He was big into Boy Scouts. He used to take Boy Scouts coon hunting in that. And he put on a big hunt. Uh, Packy and I helped him and everything else, and uh, he put on a big hunt up at his what he considered his own club, and uh, they did a good job and everything. And he had all the Boy Scouts out there to keep everything clean and that. And uh, you know, everybody coon hunts till the deadline which is probably two in the morning most places and he had uh, like a bunkhouse there and if you want to say it was a two night hunt there was pl- places for coon hunters to sleep and flop out for the rest of the night and then start all over again Saturday night because it would be another hunt on Saturday well True to uh, Nelson's doings with the Boy Scout, uh, everybody goes uh, to bed, if, you know, Friday night when they come in from hunting two, three in the morning. And Packy stayed up there. He said, I ain't going home. I'm going to stay right here. There's a bed. Well, the first thing Nelson does at seven in the morning. Now, mind you, all these coonhunters come in at two in the morning, and <laughs> the first thing at seven in the morning, Nelson goes out there and he plays. I don't know the army song that used to be, but had all the buglers out there waking them up at seven. Yeah. There ain't nothing to do but sleep, and he has them up at seven in the morning with about twelve kids playing bugles. <laughs> It was funny as heck. If you've seen it, well, you, you wanted to shoot them, but I mean, uh, they were just kids. But that uh, just come to mind how crazy <laughs> them days were. In that. Well, and, you mentioned the coon hunters just flopping in there to sleep. So this was maybe the first coon hunter's flop house, maybe? Yep, more or less. <laughs> and 
then we had, we had uh, I, I'm leaving the clubhouse. Everybody's looking at me going down the road, and uh, they're giggling like heck, but you don't know what they're giggling about. Well, I found out about five miles down the road. I start smelling something. I said, what could that be? Something dead. I pull over the side of the road, lift my hood. Somebody put a dead possum on my manifold. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> but this is typical mm. tricks if you loaf with my bunch. I may want to try and not do the other on, on tricks like that. So yeah. I had a good, I had a good idea who done it, and he got some funny stuff on his door handles a couple hunts <laughs> later. But uh, that's the way it goes. Well, so, I've I heard the stories, some of them from Packy in the past, and that's why I'm so glad that you're on on the Gone to the Dogs podcast to share those stories. Just a little aside, right there. How's the hunting been up there in Pennsylvania lately? I tell you, uh, naturally, nobody kills coons hardly anymore because of uh, they're not worth nothing money-wise. The, uh, the guys, are uh, for supplement any money they want to make, they've been looking for the big coon contest. I won two of them this year and third in a big one, and uh, uh, they're paying pretty good on them. I think the boy that won the big one, I got eight hundred dollars. That was just two oh, two weeks ago, and uh, that's a pretty good payday. Uh, these guys up here don't want to pay the money, but yet they want to win the money. I went <laughs> to one down Tennessee in Kentucky. Me and Scott Perky. This was a couple years ago. A buddy invited me down there. Now we paid at that time. I think, don't quote me, definitely a $100 entry. I think it was a hundred and a half. But you won 10 places, first place all the way down to 10. Uh, but they didn't do it like we did up here. We did by strictly by the weight. They found out it's a lot easier and definitely more honest to give everybody that brings a coon in a ticket. And at the end of the night, at one in the morning, they draw tickets. If you get number 27, I happen to have it, well, I win first place. And they did that. First place at that night was $2,000. Wow. And they get that many dogs. They had 150 dogs in this hunt. And uh, second prize was 2000 Third was, uh, I think. I think a thousand. Then they had a shocker cars, tracking car. Ten place was a five hundred pound dog food. Even if you paid a hundred and a half to for that, that was close to what a hundred fifty pound of dog food would cost you. So you made out pretty good. I met guys down here from everywhere. They. They And they said the same thing to me. Fred Moran, what are you doing way down here? I said, I need that dog food. I came down to get some. But, <laughs> well, uh, I heard a variation of that. I believe it was over in North Carolina. The way they do it there is they put in the numbers and say if they drew out a six and you had a six-pound coon, then you won. 
Okay, they drew the numbers. Whoever I had a, uh, the, okay. a coon the size of that number, you know. But it's it's a variation of what you're That'll saying. Work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, like I say, they uh, we didn't win nothing, but we had a good time and uh, got to see a lot of old timers. Only see once a year at a major big hunt where they go to a breed event and yeah. so forth, and. Uh, but I was amazed at how many dogs they had that they had 150 dogs. And now th this was probably uh, maybe longer than I'd say four or five years, maybe seven or eight. And when we went down there, I was, well, I've been in Kentucky a hundred times hunting, but I seen some pretty big coon. They, you put them all in a pen and uh, so forth. You can, if you want your coon, you mark it, and I'll let you take your coon back. However, I, I seen this guy in a truck, and I said, what do you do with all, uh, all your coons when, if they don't take them? He said, uh, we got a biologist comes in, picks them up, and checks them for dinner. They didn't have no biologist. He had a sign on the front of his uh, uh, license plate. Uh, Kentucky Fur Fur Trappers Association. <laughs> he was a buyer. I tried mm -hmm. to buy five coon off of him, uh, five bigger coon. I said, I'll give you 15 bucks for them five coon, uh, <laughs> each for them five. Oh, I can. I go turn them into the biologist. I said, okay, buddy. But <laughs> Everybody's got a, a racket, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody's got a, a me method of doing it. So. Yeah, that's for sure. But, uh, but it was a fun hunt as far as I was concerned. Uh, I liked a good crowd. They had meals there. They had women, women there cooking and that. So everything went. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, you'll never get anybody pay $100 to enter in a night out like that. And hmm. uh, hunts have changed a lot. And while I think of it and got hunt, uh, night hunts on the mind, I want to. Uh, the public to know whether they know it or not one of the main guys that we ever had night hunts in Pennsylvania was a guy by the name of Dick Crowell from Prospect, Pennsylvania mm -hmm. he lived, uh, belonged to the Butler Coon Hunters uh, up in Butler, Pennsylvania he was the first man to ever promote night hunts in Pennsylvania and got it done and it was back in, I'd say, in 54, uh, 55, because I went to the, my first one in 1956. And uh, I went as a spectator. I wanted to see what they were like. 57, I start running in them. But uh, if it wasn't for Dick Crowell, then it came along sooner or later. But he's the one that promoted it and everything else. And the first night hunts in Pennsylvania were NCA, National Coon Hound Association. Uh, they were the elimination hunts. You hunted two hours, it went back out for another two hours. And if you were lucky, you were getting out of the woods at daylight. And uh, if you got in that final cast. But they were nice hunts. And uh, Eddie Ross promoted them mostly. And then uh, Leonard Rossiter in Ohio picked the idea up from uh, Eddie Ross 
and he promoted them real heavy in Ohio. And that, that to me, was a capital. It, to me, it always was a capital of coon hunts. But UKC told me, I asked him who had the most licensed night on all through the years. Well, back then, they told me, I think Indiana was first, uh, which surprised me. Tennessee was second. I think Ohio was third. I didn't ever think Tennessee would even be up in the top five or ten, but they were second, at least whoever I talked to at UKC at the time. Yeah, but, we used to keep statistics on things like that, Fred. I know that through the years, Missouri or Missouri was uh, always a big state in, in terms of numbers, too. So, uh-huh. yeah. Well, you know, as you speak about this uh, gentleman there in Pennsylvania, uh, then you, I, I got to think back to Lester Nance in Indiana and how, right. uh, uh, you know, a vision, or I don't say, he was persistent is the word I want to say in approaching UKC about his breed of dog, the tree and walker, you right. know, and, and they turned him down at first and all that. But we just don't think enough about these pioneers that, you know, brought this thing along and, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, it caught on and snowball effect down through the years. But it's great that you're able to remember those people and that we can mention them here on the podcast because they really are the, the pioneers, the founders, you know. Dick Crow, uh, uh, from Prospect, he asked me, because he, he seen us hunting crazy. Like I say, I first one I went to, I went as a spectator. And I remember Vinny Orlando, who used to write a column in the magazine. He came all the way down from North, uh, from Connecticut. Right. Him and two of his buddies, and they participated. I went on his cast just to spectate. Mm-hmm. And we were all green about it and everything. They uh, probably broke a million rules, but, I mean, we, we were actually green about it. But, they sure caught on first. And what amazed me most of anything, when they started, all these hunts were great hunts. There was no paper. Well, there was a few. They had a registered division and a grade division. And for the public that don't know what grade means, that means a dog that's unregistered. Well, they found out they could make a dog a night champion at. Everything changed after that. Sure I went did. to Millersburg, Ohio, and me and my buddy, and they had 96 grade dogs in it. It was amazing. They had probably, I'm guessing, 10, 10 registered dogs. And the following week, they had uh, 60 registered <laughs> dogs. <laughs> Got it done pretty bunch. quick. Oh, huh? well, Fred. We gotta we gotta stop right there. Uh, it's great to have you checking in with us again. And and again, I'll tell our listeners that Fred Moran's going to be a regular feature on the Gone to the Dogs podcast. We'll be uh, visiting with Fred and hearing his stories and the remarkable memory that he has for the history uh, of this and of coon hunting and all. Well, Fred, that's going to wrap up our visit for another week. But we sure look forward to having you on again next week. Okay, Steve, thanks. Good night, JJ. <laughs> All right, the great Fred Moran, the Red Bone Man. Always good to check in with Fred. Okay, 
Billy. It was good to hear from Fred again. It always is. But I wanted to talk to you about uh, your philosophy of this hunting thing and the sport in general. When I read the posts that you make, you know, you go deeper than the average coon hunter in the way that you look at the sport. Uh, we all love to go and hear a dog running tree, but you seem to have a, a real appreciation for it that kind of goes deeper. And if I'm putting you on the spot here, I no, apologize. Sir. But Mm-mm, you no, want to talk about that a little bit? Well, um, I don't know if it's any deeper than a real true coon hunter. Um, like I said, when I was in this really heavy, my first of all, my sport and love is coon hunting. I'd pleasure hunt if there was never another competition hunt. I love to go out and I want to hear a dog trail a coon. I don't want to hear him turn over every leaf all night long. I want to hear him run and trail a coon um, and tree it and have it. That's my big thing. Now, if I don't competition hunt, that's what I want because it takes a lot of work to get to that point to begin with, with a pup or whatever. But um, I really enjoy it. I don't know how, like I said, I'm, I can't step into the competition thing yet. I'm what's winning, I've been watching and seeing. It doesn't seem like those are real popular right now. Um, but that's what I went after when I was searching for my next dog. Uh, I don't know. It's a real deep subject, Dave, but I just, there's something out there when you're out in them woods and I'll go right by myself. And when that dog opens, my hair stands on my back of my neck and it can be from when I first started till last night. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, something that's, uh, it's kind of really hard to explain, you know, uh, mm-hmm. well, I'm not a philosopher, but I mean, <laughs> if you get out there and, you could, when it turns dark, I sat there, waited for my dad at our hunting club gate, and it's just getting dark. About this time of year, when the whippoorwills start coming up, and I would just get lost right there with the dog in the truck. I mean, it's something being out in the woods and being out there with that nature. The whole thing just um, intrigues me. I just love it. I'd rather be nowhere else. I did terrible at school because I wanted to be outside, you know, so. Well, I think uh, you and, and with I these dogs make it better, you know, for sure. And and I can relate totally to that. Uh, being in school, I was constantly being told by my teachers that I wasn't paying attention. That mm-hmm. you know, and I was daydreaming. Uh, right. I'd say in my book that I would have been the poster child for the uh, attention de- deficit <laughs> syndrome or disorder. Right. Because my mind would just, I'd, I'd open a book and start reading a story or whatever, and then immediately I'm out there on the ridge with my shotgun across my knee mm. uh, watching that hickory tree for a gray squirrel. Or I, I'm I'm walking up that hollow and that big moon's just peeping over the ridge in the east, and I'm listening for that dog to open. And... Mm. Uh, I think they're they're really I, I guess the you know in literature they would say that people that that write the way we think would be romanticists you know mm-hmm. we we kind of there there's a, almost a romance with the sport that we have if that makes any sense uh that mm-hmm. you know we we do love it we respect it 
it intrigues right. us and it draws us in to a level that the guy that just runs out here, jumps in his truck, stops at the gas station, fills up, grabs a energy drink and a and a Slim Jim, heads to the woods, throws the dog out there and keeps his nose in that Garmin for an hour or whatever, goes to the mm-hmm. tree, flips the light up there. I see it in the videos that I see I on on Facebook. I see. Well, you pe- just opened a can there. I <laughs> wanted to talk about Lord. Yes. Well, uh, let me finish this one little thought, and then let's go into it. But I, I noticed this in Facebook. They'll come in there to the tree, and they'll show the dog at the tree and all. But then they'll flip that phone up just enough that you can just barely see where there's a coon, and boom, back down there. <laughs> and you know they probably grab that dog. Let's go. Let's tree another. One. Man, uh-huh. take it. Pan that camera slow up there let me look at that old coon that's right whether you know if he's sitting on a limb or what yeah i i don't know maybe it's just the stage of my life you know where everything is slowed down for me but what what do you think well i'm thinking i have just got well six months ago i bought the doctor got two tracking collars with it got my tracking stuff and I've been getting used to this thing, taking this puppy out here. Because while she's out there trying to learn, I'm looking at this thing, trying to learn myself. You know, this dog sure. with the whole screen. Mm-hmm. And I found myself the last few times taking her out there, not even pulling my phone out. See, I'm reverting back because if I'm out there, Stephen, this dog of mine is running and I want to hear her. I want to listen to her. If I can see where she or hear where she's at, I'm not touching that phone. Yep. This is just me personally. Yep. Now, if I can't find her and she, or if I know that I'm around a road or something and she's getting awful close, then I may pull it out to find out. But other than that, my ears are open in the woods, not my eyes. I just can't do it. I see that on Facebook, exactly what you're talking about. And that's well and good. And a lot of people who are just starting don't know any better. And I think it was um one of those podcast guests said, You'll learn from them dogs. All you got to do is listen, listen, mm-hmm. listen, listen. You'll learn everything they do. But yes. you can't do that and look at that screen at the same time. At least I can't. Maybe mm-hmm. somebody else can, but that's just my thought on it. I love it, and I can find my I used to have the, what was the old? Uh, beep, beep. ATS? Oh, yeah. absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. I, I used to use that. And that's a pain in the behind. You had to pull that old big antenna out and all that. But um, I found my dog with it a many night whenever I couldn't hear her. You know, hear sure. him, but um, and if I if I had one now, I'd probably still be using that because mm-hmm. I don't care. To me, if he's two hundred, three hundred, four hundred yards, it doesn't bother me. I can hear where she's at when she trees or he trees where he's going, how he's moving, and gets near trees, I'll know where to go. I mean, I just never have figured that out yet, and I probably will one day. But that's a new one to me. That's just hadn't registered just yet. Well, I, I I can identify. Uh, wholeheartedly like my wife will complain to me if i'm focused in on watching something on tv she's mm-hmm. talking to me and i am not hearing one single word she's saying because i'm fo- focused on that screen and right. what's coming on there and i and i think these kids are the same way and and i see them on that uh um uh, you know in the hunts uh, what few that I've judged in latter years and and all and, and they're 
face is right there down there in that screen and that thumb is wow. working and you know and they don't hear the dog <laughs> i was kidding my buddy bill slaughter down here bill's been a long time coon hunter and he's about quit now but uh, a farrier and uh, he and i've been friends for years and years and course he got uh, a garmin and uh and he was always having problems with it and he was always fiddling with it as i say back in the hills right. fooling around <laughs> with it and one night there we had a really good race it made kind of a, a big loop and it came right back in pretty close to us and the dog slammed a tree and man it sounded good and i was telling mm -hmm. him, i said bill that was a real race wasn't it he said huh I said, oh, I said, Bill, you didn't, you're not listening to the dogs. You're watching the screen on that darn Garmin and, and, and fussing and cussing at it because it's not doing <laughs> what you ought to. But, and, and of course, Bill would forgive me for using him as an example, but, but, I you know, yeah, but wow, you know, I, I find myself being just the opposite. I'll be out there in the woods, you know, and, and I have, a, I wonder where that dog is. He shut up right there. wonder where he went. Well, you could pull that device out of your pocket and look on the screen and you could see right where he is. But I don't even think to do that most of the time because I'm, I'm just totally old school. You know, you listen yes, to the dog, the dog tells you what's going on. Every and, time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and also to dig a little deeper on, on this thought, I mean, you, you seem to have a really good attitude toward life and about things. You've been very, very encouraging to me yeah, very uh, good. with your posts, with your messages to write to me and say, I enjoyed the podcast. It was good. There was a portion of it there that I just, I wanted to play over again or whatever the comment was. And for uh -huh. somebody that's doing this thing, uh, week in and week out, those kind of things really mean a lot. And I just want to publicly thank you for that. But oh, at, the, yeah. at the same time, I know that that's kind of the way you look at life, isn't it? Yes, sir. Absolutely. And you know, I don't want to, get back to this Garmin thing. I'm not down to anyone for doing anything like that. That's definitely the way I need to do when I'm out in the woods. If that's how they feel, they want to hunt and enjoy themselves then more power. Absolutely to them. As long as they're out there, that's good. But I just haven't, it hadn't registered to me yet to do that. So right. I'm just going right. to stick with what I know and what I enjoy. And I got it with me and I'll use it when I need it. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, we're on the W hunting supply platform here with this podcast and they make their living, you know, by selling electronics, right. and all the other hunting gear and, and the great service that they give people. And they're a real sounding board when people have issues and problems and so forth and all. And Hey, don't miss in, uh, misunderstand me people out there i'm not saying we need to go back to a carbide light and nope. uh, and a two cell flashlight and and hoping that a dog you know we throw the coat down at the end of the hunt where we turn the dog loose and hope he comes back by I've the next morning. Too. Oh, yeah. But, you know, we do appreciate all these conveniences that we have. It's, a, it's an amazing time that we live in, and they continue to try to improve these devices all the time. I know the hunters kind of growl, so, well, Garmin's coming out with another upgrade. Uh, 
you know, they just want our money, but they're, you know, they're improving the product of what they're doing. And I guess there's a price tag that goes with that. And it doesn't right. matter whether you choose Garmin or Dogtra or Sport Dog or whichever one you use. Uh, very few hunters are going to go out to the woods today and turn a dog loose without one of those. It'd be kind of foolish to do that. That's I right. I'm one of them. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, the safety factor is one of the great things. Exactly. You know, you know when that dog's going to get in trouble, going to get into a bad place and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about the pup that you got now and how it's acting and what what's going on. Um. Yes, sir. Well, uh, first of all, I got a shout out to Mike Roseman and Noel Goodman over in Arkansas. Okay, because uh, they work with me with this pup. I mean, they wasn't even advertising. I kind of messaged him the same way and got on him, put him on a spot. Maybe I don't know because he didn't know me from Adam. But we did talk over the phone, and he's a real nice guy, and he worked it out. And these puppies wasn't even for sale, so um. I wind up talking to them, went down to Arkansas, hunted with those guys, and man, super nice. Wind up getting this pup. You bet so I'm mm-hmm. I'm really, really happy with her right now. She's just starting. She's got a long ways to go. We working on it, but uh she just turned eight months old and I haven't pushed her, been doing a lot of obedience and things with her, so I'm happy with her progress right now where she's at. But um I'm really happy with it. That's not a you know, I can't tell you a whole lot because I haven't. She has treated on you. a hang up and all that but I, as far as just getting used to the woods and taking her out at night by herself doing things we're just working right now so um well that's she's great improving. now is yeah. that out of michael's stud dog wood yes sir wood. long range mm-hmm. wood uh-huh. yeah yeah i've heard that he's a real nice dog i haven't been with him we'll give a shout out to michael roseman he uh has the sunspot lights right in that right and a super yes, nice sir. guy. Spent some time at Autumn Oaks this year talking with Michael. And and uh, he, you know, I, had invited me out to go hunting out there with him. It didn't work out at the time. But, uh, well, that's great. And uh, it's always good to have uh, a pup coming on, something, you know, that you can uh, see, uh, put kind of put your touch on it the way you know you would like a puppy to be trained and and to be brought along and also that's great it's great you know i was thinking i love fooling with puppies don't get me wrong it ain't my life's passion because the puppies are a whole lot of work i mean you start them boogers off and you got so much to do it's just a ton of work if you want to go coon hunting right now don't start a puppy go find one but i'm thinking I mean, I, I, I want something that nobody's really had their hands on. I want to put my mark on it, even if it takes a little bit longer. That's just my way. You know, mm-hmm. um, I have a couple of more puppies in, in the works maybe that I'm looking at. So I want to do the same thing. And I know I'm not a spring chicken here, but I believe I got a few more hounds left in me. You know, be able Oh, to absolutely. With I'd love to trade wanna, ages you know, with you. yes sir but i'd rather do it that way than go find one that you know that's six seven eight months old that somebody's had hands on because usually if it's really good that person don't really want to let it go i I mean you get some circumstances where they would but i just assume try my luck with a good well-bred pup you know so yeah um well i think we'll see where it plays out you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's always step number one is try to get the best bred puppy that you can find. Absolutely. And there's different ways that you can evaluate that. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, 
the family of dogs that they come from and and uh, and the type of dogs that they are because these families tend to be different within a given breed and right. uh, and all of that and uh do your homework in that regard uh then you know just apply the basics number one is health care you know make sure that puppy's parasite free he's got all of his vaccinations uh in in the case of of puppies you do need to give them the jab i know there's some people want the jab some people don't want the jab but when it comes to your pups you need if you've seen a litter of puppies wiped out by parvo uh you understand how important those vaccines are to those puppies and uh, give them a good uh healthy foundation where they can grow and be healthy and then then um you know let nature uh I, what I always believed in in training puppies was just to put them out there and let them get exposed to everything, yep. and then let nature take over and and you know and show them uh, those those instincts or the genetics, as we say, will kick in for that pup. And, you uh, know, Steve, um, I, uh, I'm sorry to cut you off. You're no. talking about that, Steve. Whenever. Way back, I keep saying way back, it wasn't that long. When I started this thing, we always hunted with an old dog. I, this puppy will be, and it seems like I'm a rookie, but this puppy will be my very first dog. I'm trying to start this thing by ourselves. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, a different game for me because we always had a coon dog here. My dad passed away in 1998, and I took over mm-hmm. his old dog um, and mm-hmm. finished him and everything in the hunts. But he always had one coming along we started one with. Now, the old dog, when he passed away, uh, his name was Fred, but he ordered him from Dale Hall in Texas. He was off High Mountain Eight, which was a lipper. Okay, <clears throat> little dog, four months old, and I couldn't even get him out of the truck. He was so scared. But Dale said he'd run the woods and the uh, fields down. They never had a hand on, so I understood. But he was never ever mean. But we pulled the little dog out of the truck, and I had him on the ground. I'm like, Oh God, what'd you get here? You know? Mm-hmm. And he's looking at me. Well, we talking and, and just ignore the puppy a minute and in the corner of the yard big old magnolia tree we hear something barking whoa, whoa, whoa. so we go walk back there and this four month old puppy just got off the plane is standing on this tree every breath tree a squirrel over there i never <laughs> seen this yard and i told i shook him by the arm i said that'll be grand night for the year i mean i was i couldn't i think i was walking on air boy that joker was doing the job you know um and he wound up being a Super good coon dog. He had some health issues. He got to Olympia. There was a lot of things that had to work on him. He had four wins toward Grand with him. and couldn't get that last one. Um, but that's that dog is why I went with this puppy. See, mm-hmm. I know this puppy's different daddy and all, but he's both bottom and top lipper. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted that trailing tree, and I know from what Wood and the mama, they should do that. You know, that yeah. was the whole point of that dog is that. You're talking about wanting something, and, and nothing against any other breed. I mean, I love the Finley River, the Yakin. Those are really nice. But this is a particular one I wanted to try again mm-hmm. to see if I can at least get back to some of that. Yeah. So, well, you we'll walk see. into training yeah. that – I'm sorry. You walk into training that pup with a confidence that you yes. – you know, you're confident in the background of the pup. You know what the bloodline is like. 
So that's a good starting point, you know, and then mm-hmm. so you don't tend to get as discouraged sometimes, you know. Uh, we're True. we're just now starting in the training stages of, of two puppies with partners that I have, uh, one in North Carolina, the Plot Pup, and one in, in uh, Virginia, the Walker Pup. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're, bo- they're a day a- apart in ages. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're about four and a half months old or so. So it's, it, but, but both of them, my partners have agreed that, you know, want to take a slow and steady, uh, uh, tact with training, them. you know, let them develop at their own speed, let expose them to things. And if the, if they're ready to go to that stage, they'll go. And if they're not, yes, we're not going to push them, you know. There's no no time clock on them, really. You know, we right. know if a dog gets to be a year and a half, two years old, and he has no interest in game, or even a year old and has no exactly. interest absolutely in game, then we probably have a problem and need to go a different direction. But right. Well, Billy, uh, we've been at this about an hour and ten minutes now. Can you believe wow. how time flies when we're having no, fun? Sir. That's pretty pretty fast. I'd like to just say, if you don't mind, uh, I reached out to, when I was getting back into this thing, to a few guys that's been tremendous in helping me, especially get my mind focused on what these puppies trying to do it by themselves, different things. And, um, Mark Ketcher's side in Missouri is a good friend of mine. I've been talking to him and messaging him, and he's helped mm-hmm. me out tremendously. You know, um, Great. Yeah. Joe Joe Manning also has given me some great advice. Mm-hmm. Tom Hopkins. Yeah, we talked. To, I really yeah. appreciate them guys. Yeah, you know? well, um, you're 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 talking to some of the best there for sure. Well, that's what I really set out to do. I mean, nothing against anyone else, but I know these guys have been there and done that, and they've mm-hmm. all been more than helpful to message me and talk to me and try to help me out. Dick Brothers, another one that's really been fantastic. I mean, they, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I, I really appreciate that more than they'll know. Cause if this dog makes it, it gives me some future with the other ones that I can take from that, you know, and I'll sure. do anything. If they need anything, I'd go to Missouri, Texas or wherever if they needed me. Well, I know so, you would Billy and kudos to you for bringing uh, their names up and, and acknowledging uh, that they've been helpful. And that's why I wanted to bring you on the podcast and publicly uh, tell the listeners how much I appreciate you and what an encouragement you have been to this podcast. And uh, now you started out on Facebook. You had a different handle. What you, Whistling Dixie. Whistling Dixie. That's yes, right. <laughs> so for those of you out there that are listening and saw the posts made by Whistling Dixie, we're talking to the man right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I always enjoyed your post, uh, Billy, and I've tremendously you, enjoyed this conversation. And I'd like to get here in front of, as they say, God and everybody, a commitment from you that you'll come back and that we can talk again and uh, absolutely get a progress report on this puppy. And I'd uh, love it. Yes, yeah, sir. and and we'll check in from time to time. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to talk about tonight that we haven't covered? Uh, no, sir, not really, but you thank me and I have to thank you now because, um, I really enjoy your podcast. I enjoy it. There's so many, there's a, 
three or four that I really listen to. Um, right. And I can't wait to Mondays because it gets me through my Monday morning at work. <laughs> I got my AirPods in, and me and you go to town about an hour and a half every Monday morning. <laughs> I got you. Well, thanks for being a so, faithful listener. And I listen to those other podcasts too. And, yeah. and, uh, so it's good. The more the merrier, the more positive uh, output that's out there uh, about our sport, the more we can encourage people to get involved in it. Maybe we can help some, as we say, some poor soul along the way, you know. I have. Uh, yes, sir. That's a good point. I hope so. I, that's exactly what I'd love to do. Um, I need to definitely thank two more people, though, because they've I, like I said, I haven't been in the PKC hunt in 20 years. Right. I really want to get involved in it. And I really think they're doing great things. And I'm going to get involved. They're going to hunt those things one yeah. day. Um, yeah. But Brad Tony, has, he invited me. We went up on a pass on the PKC hunt where their club's at. It was a fantastic time. I really enjoyed it. Brad's been a friend of mine for years, way back when we had our club. Yeah. Um, and Tyler Duncan invi- invited me to go up to there. You yeah, know, the Mississippi State hunt down there. I went with him on a cast, had a fantastic time, got my feet wet, you know, trying to yeah. get back into that thing. Yeah. So those yeah. guys have helped me out. I really appreciate that, you know. Well, so, we give a shout out to uh, Tyler with his Coon Hunting University podcast. He's doing a great job with that. And, and Eddie Simmons is helping him along with that. And uh, they're, yes, they're just all good people. And uh, Yes, sir. Yeah, shout out to them for sure. Well, Billy, I think we've about shined this tree for this episode. We will come back, and and hopefully we'll put another ringtail or two up above the hound's head. But uh, I at, hope so. That sounds uh, great. Uh, you bet. And as I always say at this time of every podcast, if somebody asks you, where's Steve Fielder? You tell them, he's gone to the dogs. Yes, sir. <laughs>